drama. Music hit your heart, cause I know you got a soul. Hey, hey, listen if you're missing y'all, swinging while I'm singing. Giving what you're getting, knowing what I'm knowing, while the black band's sweating. In the rhythm where I'm rolling, got to give us what we want. Got to give us what we need. Our freedom of speech is freedom of death. We got to fight the powers that be. Fight the power. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and that's Fight the Power, Public Enemy. This morning on the program, we're listening to some of our favorite archives from the Mark Steiner Show. We're now going to listen to a conversation from 2012 with Alan Gilbert. He wrote the book called Patriots and Loyalists, Fighting for Emancipation in the War for Independence, about the powerful role African Americans played, both fighting for their freedom by fighting with the British and helping to win the war for the Americans. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Alan Gilbert is the John Evans Professor of the Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Denver. Uh, he's written book, uh, books like Marxist Politics, Communists and Citizens, Democratic Individuality, which is on his uh, website, which we'll talk about as well, uh, Must Global Politics Constrain Democracy, uh, and uh, lives in Colorado and is here visiting us on our studios in Baltimore, and we welcome him to the studio. Thank you very much. It's good to be here, Mark. Now, I, I am been reading, <clears throat> reading history my entire life. It's, history is like second nature to me. I just I love history. Um, and discovering new is important. So I, I'll say, throw this out here that what struck me about this book immediately, uh, going through it and reading it, was that it challenges our very notion and idea of what the Revolutionary War was about and the role the black folks played in this war. Yes. Now, did you know this before you started this book? Did it start unfolding as you researched it? I mean, how did you jump into this? <laughs> okay, I, um, I'm a political philosopher, and I write pretty broadly by trending, and I wrote a book about Marx's politics, meaning his actual work in the Revolution of 1848 and its re- relation to his theories. So I'm partly an historian. I was, I was working on the Federalist Papers in Context, and the Federalist Papers are pretty reactionary. And they discuss <laughs> in 11 – they have 11 references to the Shays Rebellion led by Captain Daniel Shays, who was deprived of his land having been promised that he would keep it by Washington and was a revolutionary soldier. Right. And they were demonstrating. And I figured being an anti-racist, I ought to look into the question of blacks and the revolution. You know, I wouldn't find much. I'd find it was the slave traders, the British, against the slave owners, the Americans. Be a few black revolts, I would sympathize with them and nothing else. So I picked up a book by Gary Nash, who was a great American historian. In It was a 1993 book. This was 1996 called Race and Revolution. And about 60 pages in, Nash says, a gigantic number of slaves escaped to the British and fought with them and were freed. We will never know the number. And then he gave five reasons why, gradu- why gradual emancipation should have occurred throughout the United States, throughout the 13 colonies after the revolution. It occurred in the north by 1804. And then he said it didn't happen because the north was no damn good. And then after a page and a half, he left this subject. And I stared at that page and a half and I said, gee whiz, if anything like this is true, it changes our whole vision of the American Revolution. I think I better look into it. <laughs> so 16 years later and after a long struggle, wow. there is now this book. 16 years in the making. Well, I actually had – I gave the university lecture at my school on this topic in 1999. And the book was almost published at Ferrar, Strauss and Giroux in 2003. It wasn't uh, the person thought chronological enough quite. She said she was old-fashioned. So now it's very chronological. And after four years at Chicago, it is. it started out as 33 chapters. There have been two edits and it is now a beautiful nine chapters. And it's, it's wonderful. And I, the, the, <laughs> Thank it, you. It really is. I mean I think that let – me, let, me, let me hit a couple of things here early on that – so we can begin to define some things. Um, that people may not know that happened. And, I, and, and this parts that happened in Maryland and, and uh, Dorchester County were fascinating to me because – Right. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> um, but one of the things – let's start here. One of the things you talk about early uh, on are the slave revolts that we don't pay attention to. Right. The, and not just the slave revolts but in the 1600s, 1700s, 
the, the intensity of the slave revolts, how many there really were, mm-hmm. more than we give credit to. A huge number. Huge number. And how many actually crossed racial lines? Right. Well, there are two parts to this. One of them is um, historians have buried the story in part as an American story, and I'll go into the reasons. And they write about it as an American story. <clears throat> and I started out with the revolts in the Caribbean between 1750 and 1775. There were about 30 of them. And sailors, black and white, had been seized by press gangs. There were riots against press gangs in the run-up to the revolution. And suddenly you found yourself, you're walking along the street, on board ship, and they said, climb up that mast, right? You fall off, we'll get somebody else, right? So if you survived, you felt like you'd been enslaved. So the sailors tended to feel like the slaves, that was just them. So they were all abolitionists. And they went and they saw these revolts and they brought the word to London, And in 1760, a guy named Fillmore wrote two dialogues concerning the man trade. And in 1764, they found the American revolutionary James Otis. And I actually taught his descendant, Rebecca Otis. Hmm. So it was fun to find James. He wrote, the rights of the British colonists asserted and proved in which he said, every man, black as well as white, has individual rights. And this was discussed in every tavern. So I like to tell an analogy, which is just this. In 2004, at the Democratic Convention, Medea Benjamin at Code Pink, she unfurled the sign when Theresa Heinz Kerry was speaking, U.S., get out of Iraq. Right. And the police hauled her out. And the New York Times reported that, of course, this crazy dissident was there in a line, right? But about 90 percent probably of the delegates were against the war in Iraq and probably John Kerry, if you scratched him, he was pretty good on Vietnam eventually, was against the war in Iraq even though he's basically responsible for having her arrested, be it noted. And so the report of what people thought and what people thought were two different things. The fact is every revolutionary crowd in the United States like the Boston Tea Party, so on and so forth, all the rank and file people were abolitionists. They didn't like slavery. So this movement, these uprisings surged into the United States and had a big effect on the American side in the revolution. And there's another story on the British side. And then this extends into um, thousands of freed blacks who left with the British for Canada, Nova Scotia, and then had an expedition to Sierra Leone right. to found Freetown in Sierra Leone. And then there was the great uprising in Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti in 1804, the one successful slave uprising in all of history. So there's an international revolution against slavery, which is going on at the same time as the independence revolution. Uh, so th- this, is, this is one of the things I found out, find, found interesting, the, 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 the idea that this battle for democracy was international in scope from the beginnings of the 1700s in the Americas all the way through the early 1800s, post-American revolution, and how it fueled world revolution. And, and, and it fueled in many ways by black liberation. The struggle for black liberation fueled these struggles, which we never give credit for in our history. Because that's just like we never give credit to the Iroquois for anything they had to do with our constitution, we don't give any credit to, the, to, to, uh, to the, the struggle for black liberation as being kind of the underpinning of the fight for American democracy and world democracy. Yes, and actually you could put it – I'll put it in another way. Look, in American history, Nash has written some good stuff on this and some other people began to catch on. In, and so in 2006, he'd given a bunch of lectures at Harvard at the African-American Studies Program on this and he wrote a book called The Forgotten Fifth about the black struggle for freedom. And in it, he said that black escape to the British was the dirty secret of the American Revolution, interestingly enough. Um, it was the secret of why he and many other people didn't write about it. But the calling it forgot, the forgotten fifth makes it a matter of identity politics, right? Well, it's just something about black people. And that's interesting because, you know, I mean, if you're an American, you know, American culture is jazz. <laughs> Right right, <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, if you don't know about black culture, you don't know about American culture. But the revolution was for freedom, and freedom doesn't mean white folks. As the Quaker <laughs> David Cooper said, isn't it amazing to read the Declaration of Independence and to f- figure out that he's a Quaker, that these people mean by the, ri- the freedom of all men, white men, 
and that they are really upset about the enslavement or the despotism of a three-penny tax on tea, but not the enslavement of a person for her whole life. So the truth is that the revolution for abolition and gradual emancipation is the revolution for freedom. It is the center of the American Revolution. It isn't some story which is just peripherally related to it. And I think there are, there are two facts here, and I want to come back to the go back. But it, it, what you're saying right now, there are two facts here that I think that are important throughout early in this conversation uh, that I think are stunning in terms of what they could have meant for history and what they did mean for history, at least from my reading of your book. One was the Dunmore Proclamation and what that meant and how the Brits might have won the war, which you allude to. Mm-hmm. And the other is what happened at the final battle in Yorktown, at Yorktown where Cornwallis lost the Brit to George Washington and the role that black troops played and the numbers of black troops that were in that fight that won that battle. Tell those two stories because those are, to me, emblematic of either end of what we leave out of our history. Yes, they are. And um, I'll start from the second. Um, Late on doing this research, I found an article by a guy named Robert Selig who teaches at um, Hope College in Michigan, which is a Moravian school. And it's not a famous article. But what he did was read the diaries of Georg Daniel Flohr, who was a German private fighting with the French Royal Dupont on the American side at Yorktown. And Flohr walked around the field at Yorktown afterwards. And in his diary, he records, most of the corpses lying around the field on both sides were Mohren, Moors, blacks. Most of the corpses at Yorktown were black. Now, nobody ever taught me that, and I have yet to meet the person who knew that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about it is uh, I have a friend, Denver Norman, guy who called me up after I wrote this book. He's a black guy. He was a, he's a descendant of a guy who fought in the Revolutionary War. So he had a real struggle to get in the sons of the American Revolution. I guess he did. Right. But he finally <laughs> did. Well, anyway, if you're a son of the American Revolution or a son of liberty or you value liberty or you value the Bill of Rights, more importantly, you may want to know that it was black folks who did the fighting primarily and black folks who did the dying primarily at Yorktown. And so all the racism, like the Republican Party is now a racist organization which wants to get rid of that other person who happens to be in the White House. You know, that's pretty much the basis of this candidate. You know, there's a depression. And there's other guys in the White House. The fact that I have no prob- program to deal with helping any of you, why should it bother you, says Romney, right? He fuzzes out any program, right? He just says, I'm efficient at laying people off as at Bain Capital. Right. Oh, excuse me. I'm efficient about the economy. So anyway, this Battle of Yorktown is marked by the role of black soldiers. And I'll tell you another story about it, which is pretty striking, um, which I found. There's a guy named Stephen Olney, and he's part of a family of whites who helped lead the Rhode Island Regiment. And at the Battle of Yorktown, he was in the command with Washington, and he was there. And they sent the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, which was an all-black and Narragansett Indian regiment, out along with several other black regiments to actually capture the two crucial British strongholds. And they were led by John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton, and they marched out. And he said... Um, Washington said, act the part of brave soldiers. And he said, when they marched out, His Excellency's knees shook, he said, but perhaps they were mine. And then he said, they must have thought that with 15 minutes walk, the journey of life would end with them. They had bayonets fixed so they would surprise the British, and they all stood there listening, and shots rang out. That didn't sound too good. And then they carried the day. They won the battle. And so... But whoever knew that? Whoever knew that? Why was that? It's not in our history books that black folks and Indians led the fight at Yorktown and won the battle. And if you read (laughs) only, by the way, only is a leader of the revolution, and he describes this, right? But one of the things about racism is it's like a screen. See, the magic I had was that I'm anti-racist and have been since I was a kid. So I was interested in what happened. So I went to 16 research libraries around the world and... The, it was sort of like the documents fell into my hands. Once you had the questions, <laughs> right, you could find the stuff right there. <clears throat> so this tells that story. About Dunmore, the British had a fair amount of racism, as did the Americans. 
The British were even more hierarchical than the Americans, and the Americans were people who were rebelling to repeople the colonial structure with Americans. Right? So there was limited freedom, but it wasn't the freedom of all. And had to involve some people because you had to get some people to fight, right? George Washington couldn't win the battles by himself. There was this British governor in Virginia, Dunmore. And in 1772, Dunmore got pissed off at all of these haughty colonists who were going to revolt against the British. If you revolt, I am going to free all the slaves and all the indentured servants who they were mainly white, who come to my side and I am going to sow destruction wherever I can reach and raise all your mansions to the ground. <laughs> and he repeated this through 1775. So actually the most important document of the American Revolution is not the Declaration of Independence actually, although it's very important. It is the Dunmore Proclamation. Which you put in full in the book. Yeah. It's a pretty dramatic thing. It's a very dramatic thing. I mean, the, the, the idea that that the Dunmore Proclamation, literally saying freeing the slaves, and the way you write about it in different parts of the book as you go through it, because there's several characters, Dunmore and others, who kind of flow through the book, that if the British had actually followed his advice and his strategy, even though you write as a, as a, him as a terrible general, but he interesting strategist, yes, <laughs> that, that the British could have, might have won because they might have kept the South. No, and um, here's another fascinating part of the, of the book. Um, when Dunmore issued this proclamation, it scared all the slaveholders. Yeah, sure. And the South Carolina slaveholders, they had a lot of blacks. There were many blacks. There were few of them. They were very frightened. They would have stuck with Britain, except that Britain had suddenly come into the war against slavery because of Dunmore. And also there was a judicial decision which – the Mansfield decision which uh, freed James Somerset who was a slave and ruled that slavery wasn't on in the British islands. And that was 1772. So there were a number of features and the word of this passed around blacks. So a lot of blacks tried to escape and go to London because you'd get away, <laughs> right? And so there are advertisements of slaveholders for, you know, and this guy, Charles, who's going under the name so-and-so, he made off with my property. I don't know he had any right. He was so well-treated. And he's undoubtedly heard of the Somerset decision as fleeing to London. So he'll try to get on a boat. So, you know, there are these hysterical, you know, and mainly, by the way, slaveholders, the guy was actually upset because Charles took uh, one of his horses. Because <laughs> these 18th century males, they're really into horses and, you know, the, the people – having slaves is secondary, but, you know, your horse, your relationship with your horse is really – and horses are wonderful. I'm not at all knocking horses in this. I want it noted. It's not speciesist. It's just, you know, they're pretty nuts, these guys. Um, so anyway, the American South seceded from Britain in a precise – analogy to the secession of the slave owners in the Civil War 80 years before, four score and seven years ago before, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So this is pretty striking, right? And in the North, they had real objections to Britain, which did not include that the horrible despotism of King George is sicking domestic insurrections upon us, as Jefferson put it in the Declaration of Independence as well as the native the Indians whose known rule of warfare is to kill every woman and child. And that, of course, must be why at Sand Creek, for example, which is in Colorado, it was all those white women and children who were slaughtered by those Native Americans. It wasn't General Chivington sent out by I'm, – I'm named – I'm a John Evans professor for distinction and research and everything is named Evans, including Mount Evans in Denver. And when Evans was the governor, he sent Chivington to do the Sand Creek Massacre. So he must have been a red man. Right. Right. Killing those hundreds of Arapaho men, women, and children in their sleep. Oh. So this Dunmore proclamation, though, coming back to this one little point, is that if they, especially in the South, where you write about how the black troops that fought for the Loyalists helped secure those coastal cities in the South and take them over for the Loyalists and control them, much like happened in New York and New Jersey – that if they had pushed that proclamation idea, pushed really put Brits really pushed the idea of bringing black folks in to fight, promising them liberation, it could have turned the tide of the war completely. Yeah, in fact, in, 
mainly did. And uh, let me talk about this a little bit. It's a little complicated. Good. It's a, or it's a story, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, Dunmore, all the blacks in the South became terrified, as one slave owner said, trying to appeal to one to come over to be with his son, escaped and fought for the British in exchange for freedom. And there are about 2,000 who came to Dunmore and Dunmore formed the Royal Ethiopian Regiment and sewn across its uniform was the, the, the words liberty to slaves. And he won a couple battles and then he got deceived by a, an American defector who was a spy. And uh, he attacked with bayonets a much larger troop at Great Bridge and the British were slaughtered. And the other thing that happened was that there was a smallpox epidemic. And this actually shaped what happened in the war because the, small, the whites had been inoculated but the blacks hadn't. So a huge number of blacks died and many were sick. And so originally about 2,000 came and he recruited, retreated offshore to his ships, the William and the Foey, and people escaped to him, which they figured out very inventive ways to do, but many were dying. So he had about 300 active troops, then he had 150, and he was eventually driven to Gwynn's Island and then to New York. So there were several results of this, that all other British commanders recruited black troops, but unlike Dunmore, they formed groups of black pioneers who fought, but they were also scouts and laborers, and thousands of blacks who had escaped followed every British regiment, like Cornwallis was followed by about 4,000 blacks, and they would sack all the plantations, loyalists as well as, as Whig, because they had to eat, right? And the British would use them for all sorts of things and mobilize them to fight, and my guess is, I don't have a number on this, um, but probably about a fifth of the blacks were actually directly recruited to fight. So every British commander recruited blacks. But the, now, now the second thing that happened was when Dunmore went to New York, in New York they launched multiracial guerrilla bands led by the slave Titus who was known as Captain Ty. Tyre. Was it Colonel Tyre or was Captain Tyre? It was originally Colonel, Colonel Tyre. Tyre. Ty. Ty. Yeah. But then he became – the British called him Captain Ty and he – was raiding in Monmouth and other places in New Jersey where he had been a slave in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, to a fellow named Corliss. And was he was a Quaker. A Quaker. And he was thrown out of the Quaker church because there had been a movement among the Quakers against slavery in 1759. They said, you can't be a slaveholder, be a Quaker, right? Which is pretty interesting. It had also a powerful force on all the Christians at the time. So anyway, Ty captured 10 slave owners and killed 10 others. And the 10 he captured, he brought to Sugar House Prison in New York City. And he was eventually killed in 1780 in a battle. Mostly he was a guerrilla fighter, so mostly his troops escaped. But somehow, unfortunately, he got killed. And the Americans praised him because he'd been Lord Voldemort. They couldn't mention his name, but now they praised him as the greatest fighter on the British side. And really, I knew what he was doing. We have to take a short break. But I think that, that when we come back, I, mean, I, I, want, to, I want to explore more about the, some of the characters in this book, Ty being one of them, uh, and the whole world of black guerrilla fighters, the multiracial nature of some of these black guerrilla units led by black people that fought for the British uh, and also why some fought for the Americans. So we're going to come back to that. We're talking with Alan Gilbert about his latest book. It's called Black Patriots and Loyalists. Fighting for Emancipation and the War of Independence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. On our way to break, we hear Friend of the Devil by the Grateful Dead. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, www.mecu.com. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that 
Even my mama thinks that my mind is gone But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking Or you and your homies might be lying and talk I really hate the trip, but I gotta lope As they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke Fool, I'm the kind of need a little homies Wanna be like on my knees in the night Saying prayers in the street light Welcome back, this is Mark Steiner, and that's Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. We're listening back to my 2012 conversation with Alan Gilbert, the Johns Evans Professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver, about his book, Black Patriots and Loyalists, Fighting for Emancipation in the War for Independence, and here's the rest of that conversation. Alan, before we jump into the guerrilla war, I, I, we were going to finish answering the question about how your supposition, which you wrote, said a couple times in the book, that the British might have won the day and how that might have happened with Dunmore's proclamation and, and fighting for black liberation. Yes, what happened is that there was military competition between the Americans and the British to recruit and free slaves. And the 1st Rhode Island Regiment on the American side came out of this. But it was a response, basically, to the Dunmore Proclamation. And Washington overcame his initial racism because they couldn't recruit any troops in Rhode Island. So they had to recruit black and Narragansett Indian troops. And the just quickly, the Patriots, they were 10, 10 months in the militia. And the 1st Rhode Island Regiment fought for five years. The reason they were the crack troops is the ones who survived were the most experienced. And they were a quarter of all American troops at Yorktown. So the other side, on the British side, they were constantly recruiting blacks. And there was the Clinton Proclamation of Sir Henry Clinton, which freed every black who would come to the British side to do whatever they wanted in 1779. So there was this competition that went on. And that's one of the original features of the book that it emphasizes this particular theme. And it could have gone through. It resulted in the freeing of slaves in the north, the movement from below in America in this competition. That's, those are the main causes, the freeing of the slaves in the north. And it could have in the south. And what happened on the British side was the British had guerrilla warfare in New Jersey with Captain Ty and in South Carolina with black dragoons, whom I discuss a lot. And if they had relied on this, and they could have recovered from the defeat at Yorktown, and Dunmore went around in 1781, 1782, he knew Ty, and he'd gone back to Britain saying, we got to mobilize 10,000 blacks to fight in the United States. And if they had done that, either the Americans would have had to free all the blacks or the revolution would have sunk like a stone. Now, one other comparative thing about this, which is novel in the book. If you look to the South, you're not a racist. And you look to the uprising in Haiti, they created Haiti. Slaves made Haiti. There was no gradual emancipation. They emancipated themselves. In Venezuela, Bolivar was losing to Spain, and he came to Republican Haiti, which is half of Haiti. And they supported him in exchange for his declaring gradual emancipation. And in every independence movement in the hemisphere, all the great liberators like Bolivar and so on, there was gradual emancipation. Doesn't mean the regimes were all good. They committed genocide against indigenous people and that. But the only regime which did not free the slaves in an independence movement is the United States, the only place that had a civil war four score and seven years later against about slavery is the United States of America. So actually that the Americans kept slavery in the South is a question. As opposed to the standard view, I'll just say, even Robin Blackburn, who is a great Marxian historian, who wrote a wonderful thing about Haiti and Venezuela in his book, The Overthrow of Colonial Slavery, writes utter nonsense about the American Revolution. He just says, after the revolution, it all healed up, so what's the big deal? Obviously, he couldn't have freed the slaves then. But then he's writing the second book 10 years later, and he's trying to think about great things that happened, and he said, there's the Haitian Revolution, and Tens of thousands of blacks escaped and fought for freedom in America. The last sentence of the book. So it's like 10 years later he had a thought. Which <laughs> <laughs> made me – I was – I think the subtitle of this conversation for me was the American Revolution is, is more than Crispus Attucks because that's all we Amen. know. That's right. all we know is Crispus right. Attucks who died at the Boston Massacre. Right. That's all we know. And he was a great guy. But, you know, yeah, right. There were – you know, it was 25 percent of the American forces. It was all the troops at Yorktown. I show that many more, like three times as many freed blacks went to Canada as historians have thought. And there was this expedition to Sierra Leone. It was part of this great upsurge 
and, and I think that the important part here is the is the visceral, intellectual, and political role that black liberation played, as we talked about a minute earlier in the program, in fueling democratic and revolution movements across the globe. Yes. I mean, that was kind of the underpinning of it. It was, and maybe I could say one thing about that, about Sierra Leone. So they weren't treated so good by the British in Canada even being freed. And this great guy, Thomas Peters, Thomas organized... Peters, interesting character. A huge hero of this whole thing. An African prince captured and sold into slavery, escaped twice, was captured and branded, escaped the third time, fought as a sergeant in the Black Pioneers with Which the British, British regiment in South Carolina, went with them to Canada, was not given land, as many other people weren't, organized to be the representative of 200 people, and took the dangerous trip across the seas. He raised some money from these poor people and took the dangerous trip across the seas to London where he was welcomed by abolitionists. And because he had fought, he met the prime minister. And there was a British abolitionist, Granville Sharp, also a great guy, who was trying to set up a free black democracy in Sierra Leone in Freetown. And the first experiment failed, and he met with Peters, and he and other abolitionists organized with Peters and went around Canada and got 1,200 people, which is – the historians have thought it was one out of every three blacks who came, which is a little crazy because, among other things, the whites were beating them up, so it wasn't too easy then. But it's actually about one out of eight went to Sierra Leone, and they founded this experiment in democracy. And the abolitionist company wanted abolition, but they didn't want no blacks ruling except Granville Sharp. So they oppressed them and tried to extract quick quit rents from them, and there were a series of revolts. But Thomas Peters led a movement for democracy in Sierra Leone, which is, A, a precursor of the Paris Commune, that is, of great uprisings for radical or participatory democracy, <coughs> B, heralds in Africa, the great movements led by, first initiated by Gandhi and led by Nelson Mandela and triumphing in the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions after the revolution in South Africa and the movement led by Nkrumah, the nonviolent movement to free the Gold Coast. And this is black liberation, but it is also the most advanced experiments in democracy and decency and nonviolence in the world and part of the tradition that gives rise to and is shaped by Martin Luther King and really ought to be taken in by everybody who is at all interested in human freedom and decency. I'm going to come back. To, I'm not going to leave that, the, the question of Freetown and um, what happened in Sierra Leone because, I mean, it's, it's emblematic of how we divide and conquer and how that was destroyed and what that democracy was. We need to talk about that because that is the, 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 towards the end of the book. But one of, there are so many things in here. There are so many people to talk about as well, uh, white and black in this book. There is... Um, uh, somebody who I have never heard of until I read your book uh, that I think that most people have never heard of who played this huge role in the Revolutionary War, uh, Lawrence, John Lawrence, yes. uh, and in the South. Uh, tell that story because I think that's a very powerful story about what could have been and what was. Um, John Lawrence is probably the most charismatic leader of the American Revolution. He was a young man who was the son of a slave owner in South Carolina, Henry Lawrence, who became the <clears> – <throat> Henry became the president of the Second Continental Congress. There are 14 volumes of Henry's papers and John is buried in them. So John actually took Henry's sentiments about – Christian sentiments opposing slavery seriously, whereas Henry – always did the wrong thing pretty much whenever the issue came up and pretty seriously. Uh, John went and studied in England and Switzerland and it was in Geneva 15 years after Rousseau was writing the social contract and saying such things as the words right and slavery are mutually contradictory. And he was the smartest, most principled abolitionist in the American Revolution who became an aide to Washington. And he wanted to recruit and free, starting with his father's slaves, to fight in South Carolina and lead them into battle. And he actually fought for a proposal, which was in 1779, passed the Continental Congress to free 3,000 slaves in South Carolina and 2,000 in Georgia. 
in exchange for their fighting. And that would have led to gradual emancipation throughout the South. And Washington, to his credit, supported this finally. He had grave doubts about Kicking and screaming. Yeah, well, pretty much. <laughs> but he really liked Lorenz. And uh, actually, I discovered in the book that Hamilton was bisexual and had a crush on Lorenz. And so there's a love letter <laughs> I found in the National Archive, which has never been published. And I didn't get to talk about it in the book. And You're outing Hamilton on the <laughs> Well, I think by now, uh, you know, if you're a bigot toward gay people, you really ought to be on Planet Cheney, right? So <laughs> at some other place than here. So John Lawrence. Yeah. So anyway, Lawrence was – he fought in every major battle of the revolution and he fought for leading blacks into battle and he was – led the crucial fighting at Yorktown and he's a huge figure and he's been buried and a large one part of the book is there's this marvelous correspondence with his father about freeing the slaves and I just go back and forth between their letters and what I do in the book generally is um, I, I cite a lot of the words that people said so I write forcefully around that but the point is that you can hear the tremendous abolitionism of the time in the words, which has been buried. And so I wanted to give a feel for that. So that's well, I, mean, I mean, to book. me, that's important in the sense, and John Lawrence was killed. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. He was killed. He's a very heroic guy, and his thing was this. He took no money for fighting. His father actually gave him some money. He took no money from the government. And he went and fought persistently in every battle, and he was almost killed. He was captured, and it was really a dangerous thing that he went through. And after the Battle of Yorktown was all over, he had a party one night and he rode out the next day and the British ambushed him and his forces at the Kambahi River and they killed him in 1782. And it was one of the tragedies of the American Revolution because he would undoubtedly have become president later, I think. He was a tremendously charismatic. He made everybody around him, Washington, I mean the letters that they wrote about him were really you – know, a, a southern white abolitionist. A southern abolitionist, right, in the elite, right, and not like, you know, uh, Washington was saved by blacks at the Battle of Brooklyn. And so um, he, after that, he, he had made some foolish decisions, and it was the naval troop that saved him that was largely black. And so he got the idea about black soldiers, but he would not have led the way in this. Lawrence led, led the way in this. There, there are other little pieces in here I think are important. Again, I mean, just this, and I want to come back to the guerrilla wars that, that were fought, that black folks fought against the Americans, um, the, the rebels. But you, but a couple of things to throw out here. One of them is um, Article 7 of the Treaty of Paris. Yeah. And the Book of Negroes. Yes. The American negotiators of Paris would have forgotten about the issue of slavery, but Henry Lawrence, who had been captured on an overseas mission, was in the Tower of London and was exchanged for Cornwallis after Yorktown, and he remembered to go to Paris and betray, betray, betray his son. Cornwallis being the British general, and we're talking uh, – who fought in America. At Yorktown. At Yorktown, and we're talking about Treaty of Paris, which was the treaty that negotiated the peace between Britain and the America, America. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, no. Thank yeah. you. I should have filled that in. And so Lawrence ends up at Paris and he writes in Article 7, which says that the British must return slaves and other property, American property with which they have absconded. And this is the sellout of Prime Minister North about this, but the American general, Sir Guy Carleton, fought against this. And what he did was he said, I found them free, all the blacks who fought for the British. And he created a book of Negroes, which is actually a list, which you can find in the public records office in London, of 3,000 blacks who went with the British to Canada, 2,597 of whom were freed, but actually it may be a larger number. Some were listed as slaves or Tories, but that may have been deceptive for many of them. And he did this so that North could offer compensation to the Americans for their property with which the British have absconded. And so Carlton is a real hero of this story. And the Book of Negroes, um, which is – the British inspectors have the idea of slaveholders. They kind of you know, sometimes write comments that are like swapping meat. 
you know. Oh, and that one is pretty, etc. And that one's beyond his laboring. Um, and um, it's really I studied this and broke it down and got all the numbers and did a lot of. And that's generally true in the book. Many historians repeat numbers that other people say or make estimates, um, which they don't give a basis for, and repeat things in letters. And I actually break down everything, every list I could get my hands on to see what happened. It's amazing how many of the um, of the American slaves were free people had African names. Yes. Were Africans. Right. And had memories of Africa. Or their families had kept this alive. Uh, curiously, Thomas Peters, who was a prince, his African name does not survive. But in many cases, it does. And when they left from Nova Scotia to Freetown, for Freetown, many of them listed their birthplace as African. So that list is very different from the list that comes from um, if the Book of Negroes which all the places they were enslaved in America, particularly Virginia and South Carolina. And so I, I talk about how many of those who came from Africa were also had a temporary sojourn in these slaveholding places. You, you um, talk a lot in the book and this, this constant theory that you develop about the two revolutions. Yes. I think that's kind of an important uh, conversation for us to have about our history. Uh, and what that meant. Yes. Um, actually, if you think about the, all of these slave revolts, there was a revolution against slavery going on through the Caribbean, which spread into the United States, which resulted in gradual emancipation in the North. So if that isn't a social revolution, in spite of the fact that the form of it is not, you get up and overthrow the slave owners, you know, it's pretty pretty sharp. And actually, Captain Ty and these black dragoons represented black guerrilla warfare or multiracial guerrilla warfare to overthrow the slaveholders. That was exact. Ty really frightened them. And as Benjamin Franklin said, well, you're never going to be killed by sheep who rise up, right? <laughs> so um, Franklin didn't like slavery. So he was... the. There was this tremendous revolution for emancipation that was international and came back to America in the Civil War, but goes to San Domingue, goes to Freetown and Sierra Leone, goes throughout the Caribbean, goes to the Black Baptist Revolt in Jamaica in 1831, which preceded the British abolition of slavery throughout the colonies in 1834. So that's the real revolutionary story. And the movements for independence are part of this, but we don't realize in the United States, because America is the first new nation, how much the other independence revolutions, particularly Haiti, were the same revolution. And in fact, this other issue is in many ways, I mean, to me, if you're, if you're concerned with the most oppressed people, which um, I am in general, and I am as, also as a political philosopher, I will just say the revolution for abolition is the great revolution of the time and drives the revolution of independence. And the whole way this is written about is a misconception. Uh, and I, I think that, I mean, it's important. I mean, the, 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 but uh, this is a piece of how we need to look at history. There's a quote that I've been using a lot because another book that I just finished and interviewed the author, um, Chris Hedges' book, as a matter of fact. And, oh, cool. uh, and the quote was from... Um, uh, Orwell's 1984, spoken by O'Brien, who is the lead character and one of the lead characters in the book who uh, manages this horrific society or parts of it. And the quote is, um, he who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. <laughs> and that to me is why things like what we're discussing today are so critically important because to understand – who we are, where we come from, what our history is, but the reality of it, not just the pablum that we've been fed, is critical to understanding where we are today and how we have to move. Yes, you and I agree on this, I think, completely. Um, I went to school with Andy Goodman and almost went to Philadelphia, Mississippi. I had been on a freedom ride before and didn't because Mississippi was tougher territory than Chestertown, Maryland, than he did. 
and he was murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi, first day he got to Mississippi. He and James Cheney and Michael and Mickey Schwerner. And so I write about this with, for and there are other reasons too, with some passion because I want to change the future. Um, more American aggressions in various places, even with drones, which is Obama's mm-hmm. weapon of choice, um, will lead to the uninhabitability of the planet for human beings, especially combined with global warming. And this has to be changed. And the oppression of black people in the United States now, particularly the prison probation complex, which Michelle Alexander has written about, is a huge thing. And I wrote this book to empower particularly ordinary people who might think that you can't move the mountain and who might face very difficult things, even for most black teenagers being you know, on probation, not being able to get a job, not being able to vote, not being able to live in public housing. To think that, you know, there are amazing people who managed to do something against all the odds over a century against slavery. And if that mountain can be moved, the mountain we face today can be moved too. And, and the, one of the mountains you focus on towards the end of the book is, is what happened really in Freetown and this democracy that they tried to create and how it was crushed. Yes. The interesting thing is that they created this democracy and the guy who came, John Clarkson, he had been, he was a decent guy in that he knew that the abolitionist company was trying to impose taxes on them, quit rents, which would have deprived them of their land very shortly. And he knew that this was dishonest and he supported the blacks in fighting about this. But he began, he went crazy and he was a bit racist and he wanted to take care of blacks, but he feared Thomas Peters. And he really thought of hanging Thomas Peters, he says in his diary. And there was a civil war because the blacks had organized democratically along the ideas of Granville Sharp, who was also one of these white abolitionists, thank you. So they all weren't bad, right? But there was enough that was bad, so there was kind of a civil war there. And the blacks would have won, but unfortunately, they brought maroons who had been enslaved in Jamaica and then freed the fight for the British to suppress the blacks who were fighting back in Freetown and eventually did. But there was this long tradition in Sierra Leone. I've just met a wonderful guy here and I met another guy in London who are descendants of these people, one of Thomas Peters and another of this guy, blind preacher Moses Wilkinson. And they have a feeling for the past and were delighted and shocked and amazed to hear about this. This is one of the great experiments in democracy, and it could have won, and it should have won. And they had there the idea of you have a 48-hour work week, which compared to what poor people faced in the United States and Britain was like 24 hours shorter. That was Granville Sharp's idea. So this is the coolest place. They had to step on it because it would have been very bad if Freetown had turned out to be just the idea that the uh, British working class should have gotten involved with. <laughs> so, I mean, coming back to um, to close out here, um, the, the idea of what you discovered here in terms of the power of the black liberation movement, what it meant for the building of democratic movements around the world, how it was pivotal in this Revolutionary War, uh, which are things really are brand new, I think, for people to wrestle with, especially the latter part about the Revolutionary War. Um and the, the people you bring to life in this book, human beings, black and white, whose stories kind of run through the book, which I think of like Ty and Peters and the others. Um, just wrap up first from, you, from your own perspective, why this, do you think this is so critically important for us to have to wrestle with here in the 21st century? We will, you know, um, the election of Obama is the election of a mixed race person. Um, cities are becoming mixed. We can either be a racist society which makes wars on Arabia, which is pretty much what we're becoming. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, you know, we fail at it and run out of run out of gas with all our oppression, and there's no future in it. We can either become a multiracial society or not. This is the history of how we've always been one. This is the history about how black people have led the fight for freedom in the United States, which has been buried in the story of the American Revolution. This is the story of how Toussaint Louverture, who was the great slave leader in Haiti, is really the most dazzling figure. And if George Washington 
had really been good, he would have been a white Toussaint. You know, so you could say Toussaint, he's the George Washington of Haiti. But actually, if we were luckier, George Washington would have been the Toussaint here. (laughs) So that's the message of this book. And it um, is gone through 16 years of work. I also write poetry. So although somehow constructing the beautiful historical novel was very difficult for me, it is actually a mainly historical novel, which tells this story of the revolution for abolition and how it was central to the revolution for independence. Alan Gilbert has been our guest, and the book is Black Patriots and Loyalists Fighting for the Emancipation in the War of Independence, Black Patriots and Loyalists by Alan Gilbert, uh, and the publisher of Chicago, University of Chicago, right? University of Chicago, Chicago Press. Press. Uh, and we'll, uh, on our website, standoshow.org, we'll attach to Alan Gilbert's website, and this book and more so you can take advantage of what he's been writing uh, as well as this book. And, Alan, great to meet you. Thanks for being in the studio with us. Mark, thank you so much. That was my 2012 interview with Alan Gilbert, the Johns Evans Professor in the Joseph Corbel School of International Affairs at the University of Denver about his book, Black Patriots and Loyalists, Fighting for Emancipation in the War for Independence. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our associate producer is Calvin Perry. Our editing producer is Ali Post. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Key music is by Wal Matthews of King Pettis. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcast app. Your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community. I'm Mark Steiner. Enjoy your holiday. Take care.